Part two of our series on Jesus. If you weren't here last week, I started a series on Jesus, and uh, we will be on this series for I don't know how long, okay? It's a long time, probably, probably until December. I was just talking to a guy just out in the lobby just now about Jesus, and there's so much stuff to talk about, and so I'm not going to tell you this is a four-part or a six-part or eight-part. I have no sweet clue, okay? So we're just going to go for a while on this. But, uh, but today's message is, is directly tied to what we talked about last week. This is the practical application uh, this message is part two of part one, is uh, the practical application of what we worked through last week. And so just to give a little bit of a quick review, because this stuff that, we've been, that we're talking about in these first two weeks is the foundation for everything in this series. In this series, we're going to talk about lots of doctrine and stuff about Jesus that is really important. It's very, very, very important how we think about Jesus and what we think about him. And so we're going to get into lots of that. But I don't want this to become, I don't want Jesus to become a theological discussion, okay? He's a person, and relationship with him is everything. And so last week, uh, we talked about, and that's the foundation for this whole series, the fact that Christianity is a relationship, not a set of doctrines, okay? And again, doctrine's super important. We're going to talk about doctrine. It's important what you believe and all sort of stuff. I'm not against doctrine. My point is uh, Christianity is a relationship. It's not doctrines. Um, you know, we all know people who have been, you know, called themselves Christians all their lives and go to church all their lives. They've got all the right doctrines in their heads. And we all know there's people in our lives that we know like this, I'm sure, um, where, you know, and these people have no fruit of the Spirit and they're selfish and they're mean and all that sort of stuff. You can have all the doctrine you want in the world and still not be born again. Is that not true? So Christianity is not a set of doctrines. Doctrine's important. Doctrine's important and, and, a, and a part of that. But Christianity is a relationship. It's, it's, it's you, a human being, following another real person, Jesus. And you talk to each other and you listen to each other and he's the one in charge. He gives instructions and commands and directions and you get this history of interactions together. It's a real relationship. That's what Christianity is. Okay, that's the definition, Christian. To be a Christian is to be someone who is preoccupied with Jesus. You, your whole life is about him. You're following him. So you're constantly thinking about him. What does he want me to do? What is his heart in this situation? Uh, where does he want me to go? How can I please him more? I want to know him more. You're, that's a Christian. It's a person preoccupied, obsessed with Jesus. And many, it's the sad thing is that many people call themselves Christians and they have no idea of that concept. A lot of people, we sign up to be a Christian for all kinds of reasons. And again, I talked about this last week and God has mercy. I, you know, I don't think there's a bad reason to become a Christian. God will just take whatever you want to, you want to follow Jesus, you know, whether you want to escape from hell. That was my reason when I was five years old. I just didn't want to go to hell. And God says, welcome to the family, Chris. Okay. And some of you, you know, you came to Jesus because you needed help in your marriage or you needed help out of an addiction or whatever the reason was you came to God. But many of us never moved from that. And we think that being a Christian is being saved from hell and then you go to church and you believe a few things and you just basically live a better life. That isn't what a Christian is. The Christian life is you signed up to follow and be obsessed with and love a person. That's what the Christian life is. And so if you're not following him, if you're not preoccupied with him, that's not Christianity that you're living. That's what a Christian is. Okay, and then of course we looked at the uh, the, the example of the Apostle Paul 
And we looked at Philippians uh, 3, in particular, a very famous passage where he talks about how obsessed he is and how passionate he is uh, for Jesus. And, and, and of course, and as we looked at last week, a lot of us, we don't get impact out of those passages anymore. We kind of think they're cute. Oh, there's Paul going off about how much he loves Jesus. And it doesn't impact us because most of us don't love Jesus nearly like what Paul does. And, but we read these passages and we think, you know, well, that was just Paul's brand of Christianity. Like we have this idea like, you know, there's, there's, there's a whole spectrum of what it means to be a Christian. Some people are just, they're, they're just passionate type people. It's a personality thing. Paul was one of those people. He was extreme. He was extreme in his love for Jesus. He was passionate. Most of the rest of us are just kind of bored with Jesus and that's okay. We looked at that last week and we saw, no, no, what Paul was living, that's normal. A Christian is, or supposed to be normal, a Christian is someone who really loves Jesus. That, that's what you signed up for. You loved him so much, I'm going to follow you. And as a byproduct of that, you get saved from hell and you get saved from a bunch of things. But a Christian is a person who really loves Jesus. Now, of course, like I said last week, and that's where this week comes in because we have to get a little practical now because no doubt, I know that some of you will have gone home uh, last week and you will have, you know, you had feelings during the message of, oh, I'm doomed, Right? I mean, if Paul's passion for Jesus, if that's supposed to be normal, a lot of us are going, oh, God hates me. Because we know that we're nowhere near to Paul, right? And I'll be the first one to admit, and I did it last week, I'll just do it again here today, because I just want to let you know, and we can be honest about this, okay? I'll admit right now, I'm nowhere near where Paul was when he wrote Philippians chapter 3, not even a question. I'm nowhere near. And I'm pretty sure that probably none of us here this morning is in our wholeheartedness for Jesus where Paul was near the end of his life when he wrote Philippians chapter 3. The point isn't that God is going to condemn you right now and he's mad at you right now because you're not as wholehearted as, as Paul. What Jesus expects from us is movement. See, the, Paul, the, the problem with many Christians today is not, it's not that God's mad at us because we're not where Paul was in wholeheartedness. The problem is that we've just decided that it's normal to not be wholehearted and we're okay with that. Being okay with not being wholehearted, that's a problem. And so Jesus says, I expect movement. What a, what a normal Christian does is we're not where Paul is yet, but we want to be in a place like that where we're wholehearted for Jesus. That's, what, that's where we want to be. And so the thing I'm coming against in this message, uh, in the message last week, in the message today, is this place where so many Christians have, have come to, which is where they're camped out in a place of boredom with Jesus. And they think it's normal to be bored with Jesus. And it's to people like that that Jesus said this in Matthew 7, 21, 23. And I'm going to read this passage. And some of you are going to think, oh, this is a condemning passage. It's not a condemning passage. It's a freeing passage. I'm going to look at it twice in this message. We'll come back to it later. But Jesus said this to people who think it's normal to be absolutely bored with Jesus and it's okay for me not to be wholehearted for Jesus. This is what he says. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Okay, so not everyone who spouts Jesus' name and says Jesus is my Lord and I'm a Christian, not everyone who says that is a Christian. That's what Jesus says, okay? On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? excuse me, and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name. And then I will declare to them, now look at the relational thing here again. And we looked at this a lot last week. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So Jesus says, you you thought being a Christian was just doing your own thing and just saying Jesus' name and you're saved from hell. And Jesus says, no, no, Christianity is a relationship. I never knew you. Depart from me. It's a relationship. Now again, I know I, I read that passage and right away a whole bunch of you go, oh, it's hopeless for me. Okay, 
But again, the point in this passage isn't to condemn you for where you are in your small and imperfect and impure love for Jesus, wherever you are on that spectrum. What Jesus wants is movement. Think about it this way. You know, if I think about my relationship with my wife, uh, uh, LaDawn, we've been married 11 years now, okay? So that makes me uh, somewhat old. And so you just extrapolate from that. That makes some of you very old, okay? But uh, I've been married for 11 years. If I go back, you know, 13 years, back to when I, when I first, you know, was just kind of meeting LaDawn, the first kind of couple times I ran into her before we even talked or anything, if I go back 13 years ago to when I, you know, first just sort of saw her and got to know her, and if I compare my love now uh, for her compared to what it was back then, those are two completely different things. Okay? Absolutely completely different things. My love for LaDawn now is far deeper 13 years later than it was 13 years ago. I mean, it's not, it's not even a comparison. I mean, what I'm willing to sacrifice for her, how much I appreciate her, how much I know her, how much I, en- I just enjoy her is like light years from where it was 13 years ago when I just first got to know her and saw her college career one day. And it's like, oh, hi, hi your name's LaDawn. Okay, there it is, right? There's, light years different, okay? Now, do I go back, you know, do I think back, when I think back to 13 years ago, do I condemn myself and go, oh, I was such a wicked person. My love for LaDawn was so weak. And you go, no, that's dorky. You're right, that is dorky, okay? And it's dorky because relationships have to start somewhere. Is that not true? You start somewhere with a little bit of love, and then over time, you grow in love, okay? The point is that there's movement, there's growth, okay? Now, if there hadn't been movement or growth, if my love for LaDawn today was the same as it was 13 years ago, then, you know, maybe the first time I ever was in the same building with her or whatever, if it was the same today as it was back then, our relationship would be dead, would it not? It's not bad that it was low then, but it would be bad if it had stayed low till now. I mean, I like what, what Pastor Tim uh, says. He said something to me a couple years ago, and it's just stuck with me. And, and when he talks about marriage, and it's so true, he says a marriage is always moving in one of two directions. There's not three directions. There's not such a thing as just coasting. A marriage relationship is either the two people are moving together. If they're not moving together, they're moving apart. And that is just so true. I mean, the moment you think you can just coast in a relationship, hey, now we got to level good, and now we're just going to coast on good. The moment you stop investing, serving, sacrificing, the relationship doesn't coast, it goes the other way, it goes apart. And this is what Jesus expects from us in our relationship with him as well. He's not mad at you for being a long ways away from wholeheartedness. But he does expect you to be moving towards him, to take whatever small, weak, imperfect, impure love you have and to take another step towards him and to grow over time. That's what he wants from you and me, okay? And that's where this message comes today because the question then is, how? How do we grow in love for Jesus? Because I've always thought all my life that messages about loving Jesus wholeheartedly, I've often thought they are the most frustrating messages to listen to. Isn't that true? Because if I preach, because how do you apply it? You know, if I preach a message about giving, that is really easy to put into practice. At the end of the message, just go out and give somewhere. Give to the church, give somewhere else. If I preach a message about prayer, that's really easy to apply. You just go home and you pray. I mean, if I preach a a message about parenting or marriage or anything, you can just go home and you can do it. But when I preach a message, you have to love Jesus. There isn't a red button somewhere. You can go home and I'm turning on love for Jesus now. 
right? There isn't a button somewhere. How do, I, how do I go from not loving Jesus? Right now, let's be honest, Chris. You might be sitting there. Let's be honest. Right now, I call myself a Christian, and I'm really scared because some of the things you've said in the last couple of weeks. But I have to be honest. I don't love Jesus at all. I'm really bored with him. How do I go from that to being Paul? It seems impossible, and many people despair of it. They think, I can't love Jesus that way. And people are frustrated. Many Christians are frustrated because they don't know how to work up love for Jesus. And that's why this message I'm preaching today, this message is all good news. Because the first thing I want to say to you here today is, you're right, it is impossible to work up love for Jesus. I just want to take that burden off you right now. Because I know many of you in here today, you're still, after last week especially, but you're feeling like, I am not a passionate type person, Chris. I could never be wholehearted for Jesus like Paul. And you think, I just can't work up love for Jesus. And you are bang on correct. You cannot just work up love for Jesus. There's no button. There's no single choice you can make and just, whoo, I now love Jesus. But the, thing, the fact of the matter is, the same is true in our human relationships. And it doesn't make us despair. If I think again about my, uh, my relationship with my wife, LaDawn, if I look back over the last 13 years, there was never a day in those 13 years where I went home and said, you know what, it's time for me to start loving her, and I click the switch, and woo, I love her. Never. I don't get up every morning, I don't get up every morning, and oh, I'm going to love LaDawn today. I'm going to be attracted to her, and I'm going to love her, and I'm going to work this thing up. Never happens. In fact, and most of you know this, we intuitively know this in our human relationships. None of us do that in our relationships. We intuitively know that you can't work up love by working up love. You don't grow in love for someone by focusing on your feelings of love. There's some, there are some other things that I have focused my energy on in my relationship with LaDawn, and as an automatic result of my energy going there, I have feelings of love for LaDawn over here. And we all intuitively understand this with our human relationships, but we don't apply it to our relationship with God. And so what I want to do today is I want to show you a biblical progression. We need to stop thinking. I want to free you for the rest of your life from having to think, I have to love Jesus more. And I want to show you where you can focus your energies, where love is the automatic result and so I'm going to give you a biblical progression, and I'm not even going to build this. I'm going to give you four words, and I'm not going to build it point by point, so it's sort of a surprise where we're going. I'm going to give you the whole thing right now at the beginning of the message. No more surprises the rest of the message, because I want you to remember these four words for the rest of your life, okay? And hopefully it'll be easy by the end, okay? But I want to show you a biblical progression for how you grow in love for Jesus to be wholehearted like Paul. And the four words are, seek, find, know, love, Okay? Seek, find, know, love. I'm going to say those four words so many times here today that you are going to be sick of them, and hopefully you'll understand them just a little bit. But I'm going to start with love. Let's talk about love. The first thing you need to know about love is that you can't love someone you don't know. Is that not true? I mean, that's just true. Again, we intuitively know it. 
We, we intuitively know that and apply it to our relationships with human beings, but we don't apply it to our relationship with God. You, it's impossible for you to love someone you don't know. If I go back 14 years before I knew who LaDon was, if I had a time machine, I went back and I went to, my, to where I was living 14 years ago and knocked on the door and said, hey, Chris, do you love LaDon? And I would say, huh? And I wouldn't punch myself in the face from 14 years ago and say, you idiot, how can you not love her? Because obviously I didn't love her then, I didn't know her. Okay? In order to love someone, you must know them. In fact, um, um, it, the word intimacy means to know. Right? Isn't that true? To know, to be intimate with someone is to know them, to know their fears, to know their hopes, to know their little, you know, their quirks and their idiosyncrasies and how they work. Like, I know all kinds of things. 13 years later now with LaDawn, I know all kinds of things about her that you guys would think, wow, she is really weird. And those are exactly the things that I love about her. I just, I love them. And the more I get to know her, the more I appreciate and love her. I love the little things about her. I just, I just love her. But knowing is connected to loving. And the more I know her, the more I love her. But when I didn't know her, I couldn't love her. Okay? And this, is the, this exact same thing is true of our relationship with God. And so the first thing I want to tell you here today is that the reason so many Christians, the number one reason why so many Christians don't love Jesus, this is the reason, I'll tell you why right now, is because we don't know him. Is because we don't know him, okay? Uh, we say his name before meals, and we say his name at church, and we put his name into devotionals and all kinds of things, but then we're bored with Jesus. Why are we bored with Jesus? I'll tell you why we're bored with Jesus. It's not because Jesus is boring. We are bored with our lack of Jesus. We don't know him. If you knew Jesus, you would love him. I guarantee it. I mean, look, read the Gospels. If you knew Jesus, you would be passionate for him. You would not have to work it up. I don't care who you are today. You could be sitting here today and you're like, you're the most stoic, unemotional guy. You think you can never be passionate for God. It, just read the Gospels. I dare you to find me one person in the Gospels who is bored with Jesus. I dare you to find me one person that Jesus met that was bored with Jesus. Jesus shocked people. He surprised people. He offended people. He delighted people. He angered people. And he sometimes scared people. He did all kinds of things, but Jesus never bored people. Now, not everybody loved him either. The ones with bad hearts hated him, but nobody was in the middle. You either loved him or you hated him, but Jesus inspires passion. If you knew him, you wouldn't be just bored with him. Think about the disciples. I want you to think about the disciples for a bit here. The disciples were not super spiritual gurus. Like, I love that the Gospels just show us real people. They had all kinds of problems in life. These guys came, the tax collectors, fishermen, they were normal guys. They were not hyper-spiritual guys, okay? And the Gospels show us that they had, they had many quirks, they had many shortcomings, they had many problems. But you want to know one problem the disciples did not have? They did not have a problem loving Jesus. You won't find anywhere, you know, you turn to Luke chapter 9 in your devotions one morning and you find that Peter got up one morning and he said to Andrew and James and John and Bartholomew and a few of the others, he said, guys, you really got to pray for me because I'm, have, I'm having a hard time loving Jesus these days. They were average normal guys, absolutely average normal guys, not super spiritual, and they loved Jesus. Why? Because they knew him. And he was so 
wild, so unpredictable, so joyful, so loving, so brave, so magnificent, so courageous, so everything. He was everything their hearts had ever desired, and they couldn't help but love him. After he left them, all of them, and again, I'm not talking about Judas here. Again, people with bad hearts hate him. I'm not talking to people with bad hearts, though, here this morning, I'm sure. But uh, so I'm not talking about Judas, but I'm talking about people with good hearts. If you met Jesus, you wouldn't be able to help yourself. After he left, all of the disciples were willing to be martyred for their faith. In fact, all of them were martyred except for the Apostle John. And the Apostle John, even him, the Romans tried to boil him alive in burning oil. So here's a dunking in boiling oil. Comes up. Oh, he's not boiled yet. They dunk him again. He's not boiled yet. They finally give up and they send him to Patmos and he writes the book of Revelation. But my point is, they were all willing to, to be they crucified, beheaded, stoned, whipped, beaten, boiled. They were willing to go through the most gruesome tortures and death happily... Why? For a set of doctrines, not a chance, because they knew a person. And that person had so taken their breath away, he was so wonderful, they loved him. They couldn't help but love him. And they were willing to go through anything for him. They loved him. Why? Because they knew him. If you knew him, you would love him. What about heaven? Let's talk about heaven for a minute. Do you think in heaven... Uh, you know, they, they have seminars. You know, the Apostle Paul runs a, a five-week seminar, How to Love Jesus More. And he's taking notes from my message today. No, no. <laughs> Even if he did do that seminar, he wouldn't take notes from me. But, you know, they have a seminar, How to Love Jesus More. And all the angels and the people come to the seminar. Oh, we gotta, how are we going to love Jesus more? You think they have seminars like that? Not a chance. Why don't they have seminars like that in heaven? Why don't they have messages like what I'm preaching to you here today and last week? Why don't they have messages about how to love Jesus more? I'll tell you why. Because he's there with them and they know him. If you know Jesus, loving him and being wholehearted for him is the easiest thing in the world. Revelation chapter 5, and I don't care how hard-hearted you are, it's the easiest thing in the world. I want to just show you a worship scene in heaven Revelation chapter 5. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing, that's Jesus, and he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Now, we're, I'm going to go on and get the rest of the passage here. I just want to stop here for just, just a moment. Okay, because we just have to get the scene in our minds, all right? So Jesus walks into the room and everybody, you got angels and saints and power, all kinds of powerful angelic beings, and they all fall down in worship to Jesus. Now, my question is, why? Why, at, Jesus walks into a room, everybody falls down and worships. Why do they do that? Okay? Is it because there's a rule in heaven, and it's kind of like in our kids' men, and we have, you know, different rules and stuff posted up on the walls, colorful paper to remind, remind everybody of the rules. Um, do they have kind of rules like that posted on all the rooms in heaven? And it's just a reminder, guys, when Jesus comes into the room, we need you to fall down and worship. Is that why they do it? Sort of a checklist, and someone taps them. Hey, Jesus in the room. Oh, yeah, fall down and worship. Not a chance. Why do they fall down and worship? It's not because they have to, in a sense that someone's making them. It's not because it's a rule that's posted on the wall. It's not something they have to be reminded of in the moment. The reason they fall down and worship Jesus is because when he comes in, he's so stunning, their hearts explode with worship and wonder and love. Oh, he's back again. And they love him. 
and they can't help it, and nobody has to work it up. It's sort, it's sort of like, I mean, to, to, I'm trying to help you draw an analogy here because there's a lie I'm coming against here. A lot of people, and I'm sure some of you are here today, maybe even many of us, we have this lie that I don't have a lot of love in my heart for Jesus, as if the problem is you don't have enough love in your heart. You know what? You don't have a, a, a love problem in your heart. Your heart actually would just respond like this automatically. Think about it this way. If those of you who have ever been to the Grand Canyon, I've never been there, but I'd like to be there, okay? But if you've been to the Grand Canyon uh, or you've been to the mountains, you know, I've, I love whenever I've been in the mountains. But when you're standing, you know, at the edge of the Grand Canyon or at, you know, on some beautiful mountain and you're, you're overlooking some amazing scene, okay? Do you have to work up feelings of love and awe? Like, do you, when you stand at the edge of that canyon or on the edge of this mountain or you, you look on some scene of just majesty and splendor, do you have to turn on some worship music and kind of, <clears throat> and after about five or six minutes, like, whoo, feeling the awe. Oh, I'm feeling the awe. Woo, this is amazing. No. You can be driving along a road in, in BC. I've had many experiences like this when I, when I used to live there. You can be driving along the road. There can be tons of trees along the road, and you can't even see the mountains. And all of a sudden, you come around a corner, and poof, there's one with a snow-capped peak right in front of you. And the moment, you don't have to work it up. There is no 30-second delay. There's not a five-minute workup process. The moment you see it, you go, wow! And you have feelings of awe and adoration and appreciation for beauty. Your heart is electrified, and it pretty much doesn't matter how hard-hearted you are. I mean, if you're here today, maybe there is someone here who's so hard-hearted that those scenes do nothing for you. If that's true of you, you need a lot of help more than I can give you. You have to see Stefan, okay? That you're, beyond my, you're beyond my powers, okay? But, uh, but I mean, that, it's human. Now, why is it as human beings that we see a scene like that, a canyon, a mountain, whatever it is, a scene of beauty, why is it that instantly we see that, wow, and we have, these, we have this worship-like feelings and awe and beauty and love? Why do we have that? I'll, I'll, I'll tell you why. Because our hearts were wired for that. Our hearts were wired for that. It's not like, you know, I don't have love in my heart to give to Jesus. You have all kinds of love. Your heart is wired for that sort of thing. Now, of course, God didn't make us to love mountains. I mean, he didn't just, you know, make mountains and then make people so they would love mountains. The fact that we get blown away by mountains is a byproduct of something far bigger that we were wired for. When you stand at the side of a, of a massive canyon or on a mountain or whatever and you see this view and you go, and your breath is taken away, that's just an appetizer of something way bigger. See, when God made you, he didn't make you for mountains. He made you to be blown away by himself and you just get a little taste of that. If you think you can, you can be blown away by mountains and beautiful scenes, think of how much more you'll be blown away by the one who spoke them into being. See, he wired you to be blown away by himself. If you're a human being and you're breathing, you are capable of passionately loving Jesus. That's what you're designed for. Deep down inside, you might have covered it up with all kinds of worldliness and sin and apathy, but deep down, you and I want nothing more than to just go, oh, when we see Jesus. You were wired for him. And so if you, if you knew him, if you just met him, you would be just like, the, you'd be just like the disciples who were willing to die the worst deaths for him. You'd be just like anyone in heaven who just falls down in worship. If you just met him and knew him, you were wired to have your breath taken away by him, to love him. 
Well, maybe I should just actually finish this passage here. Let's keep going here. And he sang a new song saying, Worthy are you, worthy are you, Jesus, to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And they go on and they sing this song. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and, and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb. And they don't have to work it up. It's so natural. Because he's that stunning. He is that glorious. His personality is just everything you've ever wanted in your life will find fulfillment in him. He made you, he made you to love him. The joy, the strength, that, that, uh, that uncontrollable wild nature, it's something you and I want to dive into. That it's, he is life. So when you are with him, it's not hard to love him. It's, he's everything to you. Who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard, look at this, every creature, every single creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea. Uh, it, it, it's not just women and children. You know, I, some guys, they're so stoic. They just think, you know, I can never be passionate for Jesus. And they just kind of, you know, fold their arms during worship and stuff and they just think, I, I'm a hopeless case. I think that's often what they think. I'm a hopeless case. I can't love Jesus. It's embarrassing for me even to try. And it says here, every creature, every creature who sees Jesus, every creature, not just the women and children, the most intimidating, powerful angel, the strongest, meanest, whatever guy. I mean, we're not talking about, obviously, the, the, the ones who rejected Jesus and went to hell, but everyone with a good heart, every creature who sees Jesus is blown away by him. Blown away by him. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Now, I know, I know something. I know how we people think because I'm a people. And I'm not perfect anywhere close to it either. So I know how you think. Um, I know how it is to feel when you read Revelation sometimes. I, I know how it is to feel. You read some of these worship passages and uh, you read, the, you know, falling down and singing and crowns and all these different worship scenes we read about in heaven. I know what it's like to read those passages and you don't consciously say these words because you would feel sacrilegious, but I know how it is to read those passages and feel these things are, you feel like these passages are kind of dorky. Isn't that true? Like they don't appeal to us. Is that not true? We, sometimes we read these worship passages sometimes and it's, it's, it doesn't appeal to us. It seems like, it seems weird, Okay. If you're here today and that's where you are at in your walk with, with Jesus right now, that you read some of these worship scenes and it feels kind of dorky to you, I want to tell you something. Your, your focus is in the, you're missing the point. Your focus is in the wrong spot. Okay? The focus is not the actions. Okay? It, it, the point isn't what they're doing, the falling down and, and crowns laying down at his feet and stuff. The, the point isn't what they're doing. I mean, if the actions themselves, I mean, if I went to Superstore tomorrow, and people were throwing themselves down on the floor and shouting out praise and stuff, I'd be woohoo, and I'd be out of here too. That, that would be dorky. Okay? The point is context. It's not what are they doing, it's why. Why are they doing this? And the answer is because Jesus is just that stunning. He's just that magnificent. They can't help themselves. He's just that stunning. You say, why are you making such a big deal of this? I'll tell you why. There's two lies that I'm coming against. And they, they, I think they're subconsciously, I think they touch all of us in some, to some extent. The first lie is that it's hard to love Jesus. 
Lots of us actually deep down believe it's hard to love him. In fact, we've given up on trying to love him. And, and the other lie is what I've mentioned a couple times here already today is that I don't have enough love in my heart to love Jesus. Okay? And what I want to say to both of those is, first of all, it's not hard to love Jesus. Loving Jesus is the most natural thing in the world. If you knew him, you would not be able to help yourself. And the other thing is, it has nothing to do with your heart, how much love is in there or not. Your heart was wired to love him. It all comes down to knowing him. The moment you would see him, the moment you would meet him, your heart would explode with love. It's not about how much love do you have in your heart. It's about him. If you knew him, you would love him. And so what I'm doing in this message here now is I'm making this tangible. Because we talk about I've got to love God, but we don't know how to love God. How do I work up feelings of love for God? Well, I'm making this tangible for you today. What I'm telling you today is take your energy off of trying to love Jesus. Focus your energies on getting to know him. Because if you would know him, you would automatically love him. The more you know him, the more you will love him. Take your focus off the love. Get your focus on the knowing. Now I want to show you that this is biblical. I want to go back to two passages we looked at last week. And the first passage is the Paul one. Paul, Philippians chapter 3, the passage that we either gloss over or it makes us feel guilty. And I want you to notice something in this, pa in this passage. Paul is so passionate about Jesus, but I want you to notice what he's passionate about and where his, his energy is. He, is. he is not talking about passionately trying to work up love for Jesus. In the whole passage, he doesn't use the word love once. He is completely focused, all of his energies, on knowing Jesus. I want to show you this. This is where our energies have got to be. Philippians 3, 7 to 11. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of what? Knowing, knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him that I may know him. Paul's whole focus, all of his energy was like a laser, was not on trying to work up feelings of love. That just comes automatically when you know Jesus. He's that amazing. I want to know him more. When you know him, you will love him. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So Paul doesn't say, I want to love Jesus more. That's an automatic result. Obviously, he is loving Jesus more and more and more. He's willing to give his life for him, but his energy is focused on, I want to know Jesus more. And of course, there's John 17, verse 3, where Jesus said, and this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. All right? So it's about knowing. We need to focus in on knowing, just like we do in our relationships. Serving, getting to know someone, talking to them, listening to them. As we focus our energies on the knowing, we grow in the loving. Okay? Very, very important. Of course, then the next question is, well, how do I get to know Jesus more? And, and, and again, it's not a surprise. I've, I've showed you the whole progression. Seek, find, know, love. But I want to ground this in Scripture now. How do I know Jesus more? Because if I know him, when I know him, when I meet him, I will love him. So how do I get to knowing? Jeremiah 29, verse 13, an incredible promise from God to all of us. It says this, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. This is a wonderful promise. It's, this is a promise God says 100% of the time the answer is always yes. 
The answer is always yes. If you go looking for God, you say, God, I want to know you. God, I'm seeking after you to know you. The answer, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you are in your relationship or walk with God or whatever. Anyone who seeks after God, he says, will find him. Now, there's the, there's the, the clause there at the end. It says, if you seek him with all your heart. Now, that might throw some people off and they go, oh, I don't know if I'm seeking him with all my heart. No, no. The point here isn't to, that you're supposed to question how, how am I seeking him hard enough for him to, to find him. No, no. The point is, are you seeking him truly? You know, I, I've heard people, I've actually met people that have said this to me. They said, I would believe in God if he would show me a miraculous sign right now. Those people are not truly seeking. They can't expect an answer. But anyone who actually has any little bit in their heart that just says, I would like to know Jesus more, and they take any little step to seek him to the level of their seeking, he says, I will reveal myself to them. Anyone who seeks will find. Promise from God. Anyone who asks that question, the answer is always immediately yes. That, que- that prayer request always gets answered. And you say, what does it mean to find God? What does that mean? So I'm seeking him and then I, I found him. What does that mean? It just means, it's just a picturesque way of saying he reveals himself to you. Because you and I can't know God. It is impossible. And, there, and we will get into this later in this series. The whole theology of, of, of the revelation of God and how we know God. But no person can know God unless God reveals himself to them. So what God is saying here is not that you're going to open the doors of heaven and go in and find him. It's that when you seek him, he's going to reveal himself to you. You're going to get to know him. So when you seek him, he's going to reveal himself to you. You're going to find him. When, you, when he reveals himself to you, you're going to know him. And what, what have we been talking about this whole message? When you know him, you will love him. Seek, find, know, love. Now, no doubt there are some people here today, maybe there's a skeptic here today, and you're saying, Chris, you're oversimplifying this. Seek, find, know, love. You got your little equation and boom, now we're all going to love Jesus more. It's not that simple, okay? I want to say something about that, okay? There is a sense in which you're right. If you're here today and that's what you're kind of thinking that way, there's a sense in which you're right. I, I, when I say that it's simple, I want you to know that I don't mean it's always easy. Uh, pursuing God is not always easy. I'm not meaning to say here that there's never any pain or suffering or waiting or dark times as you pursue God where it's actually very hard. It, it, I, I totally, following God takes sacrifice. It's picking up your cross. There are times of pain. There are times of uncertainty. There are times of suffering. I'm not saying seek, find, no love. is just, it's easy to love God. No. But it is simple. It's not complicated. Okay, it's sort of like this. I have, a, I have a few friends who like to run marathons, okay? I like to run, but I don't like to run marathons. That's too far. But uh, these guys like to run marathons. Now, I want to tell you something, okay? Running a marathon is actually simple. You don't have to do calculus every few steps. What am I going to do next? What am I going to do next? You're going to put another step in front of the other, and you're going to put another step in front of the other, faster than this, but I mean, another step in front of the other. Another step. You have to figure it out. What are you going to do next? Just keep running. It's very simple. One step in front of the other, one step in front of the other, one step in the other, in front of the other, for 26 miles. <laughs> it's simple, but it's not easy, is it? It requires sacrifice, it requires, there's pain, there's all that sort of stuff. That's what I'm saying. It is, the Bible says that loving God is as simple as if you seek him, you will find him. When you find him, you will know him. When you know him, you will love him. You won't be able to help yourself. The Bible says it's that simple, but I'm not trying to say that it's always easy. There is sacrifice in this. Now, some of you may still be thinking, you may be thinking, 
Okay, so you found your one little verse there in Jeremiah, your one little sentence out of the huge Old Testament. You found one sentence that talks about seeking and finding, and now you built this huge doctrine, seek, find, no love. Uh, actually, seeking and finding God is a theme that runs right throughout Scripture, Old and New Testament. It is a promise that God gives over and over and over again throughout the Bible. It's actually important to God. And I'm just, I can't even show you all the passages. I'm just going to show you four other ones because I want to show you that this is not a little theme in Scripture, the theme of seek and find. So let me just show you four others. Proverbs 8, verse 17. God says, I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently find me. 2 Chronicles 15, 1 2. The Spirit of God came upon Azariah, the son of Oded, a prophet. And he went out to meet Asa and said to him, Hear me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. 1 Chronicles 28, verse 9. And this is uh, King David on his deathbed speaking to his son Solomon. And you, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. And here's just one more passage. There's, this is a theme in scripture. Moses speaking to the children of Israel. But from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. Deuteronomy 4, 29. So when you seek God, he says, I will reveal myself to you. When he reveals yourself, himself to you, you're gonna get to know him. When you get to know him, you, you'll be, the disciples couldn't help themselves. The people in heaven can't help themselves. You were made for him. You won't be able to help yourself. You will love him. And so what I'm showing you in this message, I, I want you to remember the progression, the seek, find, no love. But the important word here, the important thing we have to realize is you don't have to apply all four of these points. See, loving, knowing, and finding, him revealing himself to you, all three of those are actually out of our control. You can't work up love for Jesus. You can't know Jesus unless he reveals himself to you. And there's a whole, I mean, that's, a, that's throughout the New Testament scriptures in particular. And, 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 and you can't make him reveal himself to you. All you can do, your energies can only be focused on the first part, which is seek. If you seek him, he reveals himself to you, you get to know him, and you won't be able to help yourself but love him. What we need to do is seek, seek, seek. And so I want to finish this message on how do we seek. And there's much more here than we can get into in just the final five or ten minutes here. Um, much more. I'm going to give you three words, but, but a couple, the last two of these we're going to develop in the, in the rest. I don't want to talk about them right now, but we will develop them in the rest of this series. But the three words I want to tell you, how do, how do we seek God? How do, we, how do we seek him so he reveals himself to us so we can know him and love him, seek, find, no love? Uh, and, and the three words I want to give you are just obey and listen and meditate on Jesus, okay? And, uh, and I want to develop that meditating on Jesus. That, a lot in this series. In fact, that's most of what this series is about, meditating on Jesus. We want to talk about Jesus. Um, but just a couple things to say now, because I don't want you to get imbalanced when I talk, talk about obedience. I don't want you to lose out that there is this other part of it. But um, a lot of Christians today, we're trying to love God. How do I love God? So we go to a prayer time or whatever. How do I love this? I can't even picture him, right? Have you ever had that problem? Like, I mean, it's easy for me to my, love my wife. I can go upstairs and I can see her. And I can do things for her and I can love her. How, how do I do that with God? And so we go to a prayer time. We don't know how to think about him. We don't know how to imagine him. We can't picture him. So how do I love him? 
How do I love someone who's invisible to me right now? He's not invisible in heaven. He can be seen. But how do I love this vague person, God? He's vague to me. He's not vague and real, but he's vague to me. And one of the things that we have lost sight of in Christianity is the fact that um, since Jesus came to earth, we no longer have to try to picture a vague God we can't imagine or picture. Jesus Christ is the fullness of God dwelling in the flesh. I'm going to develop this. Jesus Christ in the flesh, the man Jesus, the God-man Jesus, is, is God's full revelation of himself to us. And many Christians are bypassing Jesus and trying to picture God the Father nebulously while they pray in hopes of growing in love for this, for this God we can't see. In heaven, we will see God the Father. They see him and, and they bow to him and they worship him in heaven. And there's many passages about that in the scriptures. But we haven't seen him here on earth. We can't picture him. And many Christians are trying to picture this vague God they don't know about in, in, in an attempt to love him. And the Bible says over and over and over again, look at Jesus. And we've got Jesus' life, concrete, all kinds of stories about him right in here. You don't have to think about a God you've never seen before. You just have to look at him in the Gospels. And Philip, right before Jesus dies, Philip says to Jesus, Jesus, could you just show us the Father? And Jesus goes, I can just feel him sighing. He's just about to die. These guys have been with him three years. You still don't get it, Philip? If you've, and you can read this in John 14. We'll develop this in, in some later messages. But he says, you still don't get it, Philip. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I have come and put on human flesh. You don't have to think about a vague God anymore. You can look at Jesus. And that is a huge key to following, falling in love with God. But anyway, I said I wasn't going to talk about that, so I should just stop maybe. Um, I just want to finish with one more now obedience. So we'll develop that with scripture uh, later on. That's, that's a huge key. And you can't know God without knowing Jesus. That is a, that's a very common theme in the New Testament. But um, uh, obey, okay? Now I just want to talk about obey. How do, we get to know, how, how do we get to know Jesus so we can love him, right? So we have to seek. What does it mean to seek? A lot of you probably think that the practical application for this message now is you've got to go in your basement and you have to spend more time meditating and praying. There is that part of it. I just said, I mean, meditate on Jesus. We're going to get to that, okay? There is that aspect of it. But we have very Greek-thinking mindsets. We think if I want to know God, I have to know him with my mind. I have to think. And this is what many Eastern religions and New Age spiritualists, they're into, i got to meditate. They're trying to connect with their gods always through their mind. And this is not how the God of the universe only wants to be. Yes, there is an element of meditating and thinking about him, yes, and prayer. But that's only half the equation the Christian God is very different than the other gods where all this meditation stuff does it. In, in order to get to know the real God of the universe, the biggest key is obedience. The biggest key is to do what he wants you to do because it's in the doing that he reveals himself. It's actually in the actions of obeying him. I talked to a guy just this morning and the Holy Spirit had given him a prompting this weekend to just do a little thing. It was the littlest, most embarrassing, you know, just little thing. It just so insignificant. And he said, I did it. And I just, oh, the joy that spilled out of my heart. Why? Because it's in the obeying, it's in the doing that God opens up your heart and reveals more of himself to you and you get to know him and then you love him more. In the doing. It's not just in your basement thinking about him that he talks to you. It's in the doing. And the thing you need to know about God is to know God is to obey God and to obey God is to know him. 
And I want to show you this now. Two final passages of Scripture here in this message. And we're going to look at Matthew 7, 21 and 23 one more time. Let's look at this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So it's in the doing of the will of my Father. That's obedience. Now I want you to see the connection here between obeying and knowing. And remember, if you know God, you're going to love him. It's automatic. So we've got to get to the knowing. How do I get to the knowing? I want you to see the, the, the connection here, obeying and knowing. The one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Verse 22, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Notice he doesn't say, you disobeyed me. Depart from me, you disobeyed me. No, no. They disobeyed, and as a result, he says, I never knew you. The ones who disobey him don't know him. And the, the flip, the contrast is, the ones who obey him know him. To obey Jesus is to know him, and to know him is to obey him. In the obeying, he reveals himself in our hearts, and we get to know him more, and we grow in love for him. 1 John 2, 3-5. And by this we know that we have come to know him. I love that. How many of you would like to know that you have come to know God? Okay, three of you. <laughs> and by this we know that we have come to know God, if what? We keep his commandments. How do you know if you know God? If you keep his commandments. If you obey him, you know him. Now look at this next line. Love this. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a what? Let's try that again. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a what? Liar. Is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the truly the love of God is perfected. So, the first step, the first step to knowing God more. Because you want to love God, you can't focus on the love. You gotta f it's the knowing. We've got to get to the knowing. How do we get to the knowing? Is obeying. Do what God wants you to do. Do what God wants you to do. He's got commands in here. Search them out and obey them. He gives promptings in your heart. People he wants you to love. We are Christians. How many of us go through our days and there's all kinds of people around us at work and in our families and we totally ignore them and we don't love them. And he wants to give you promptings to love them and we just go through our lives selfishly. And then we wonder why we don't love God. We don't know him because we're not obeying him. You search out his scriptures and you obey his commands and you follow his promptings to do this and to do that. I'm going to love so-and-so. I'm going to encourage so-and-so. I'm going to advance your kingdom here. I'm going to serve you here. And it's in the doing of his will that all of a sudden, oh, you feel this joy. You begin to know him because as you know him, you begin to love him. And there is an element of meditation and thinking on his word in Jesus, and we will develop that. But I want you to know today that knowing Jesus is not just about a mind thing. So if you seek him, you will find him. He will reveal himself to you. And if, when you find him, you'll know him. When you know him, you'll love him. So here's my practical challenge. I'm going to finish this message now with a practical challenge. Just like, like I did last week, I want to give you three practical challenges for the week. And no doubt, I know some of you will, you've got to give me the practical challenges. So I don't really care. You didn't vote me in. You can't vote me out. So <laughs> three practical challenges. <laughs> First challenge is the same as last week. I, I, I challenge you to pray this week every, every day. Jesus, I want to know you more. Reveal yourself to me. He's a real person. He wants to answer that request. doesn't matter who you are. Again, I dare you to pray that prayer. If you seek him, you'll find him. When you find him, you'll know him. When you know him, you'll love him. He always says yes to that request. Jesus, I want to know you more. Please reveal yourself to me. 
Second thing I, I want to challenge you to do is I challenge you to apply one thing every day. And those of you who are regulars here at Southland, you know about the whole scoop thing. When you're reading your Bible, doing the scoop thing. That's, that's awesome. So you're already doing this. But my challenge to you is every day when you're reading your Bible, don't close your Bible until you've taken one thing and prayed and said, God, what do you want me to do today? That's why we read this book. This book, we don't read this as a novel to just get through it and check something off. You are reading this because you want to love God. How are you going to love him? You've got to get to know him. How are you going to get to know him? You have to obey him. That's seeking him. So we have to turn these words into action. Joshua 1.8. Don't have it in my notes, but we'll just go there, see how good I know the Bible here. Joshua, Deuteronomy, Joshua. I'm on the, I'm on the, on the clock here. Here, verse 8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. We need to turn the word of God into action so that he will reveal himself to us because he loves those who are obedient to him, so that he will reveal himself to us so we can know him, so we can love him. And too many of us have gotten into a lazy habit. Well, many of us are so lazy, we don't even read our Bibles. Yuck. Like, we're Christians. Anyway, I'll leave that aside. But some of the rest of us who are actually reading it regularly, we're too lazy, we just kind of just, half an hour's up, done, go to work. No. My challenge to you is every day, you prayerfully, Lord, one thing to do today. And I'm not talking about radical life changes. You can't make radical life changes every day of the year, 365 days of the year. No, you can't do it. But little things. You read in there, Holy Spirit, how do I apply this? And you jerk. Change more diapers, okay? I'm doing more diapers today. Okay? I got that one once, okay? You know, it's uh, be more thankful. Maybe it's change the way you're thinking. You need to think about me differently. Whatever it is, it can be very little things. Sometimes there'll be bigger things. Sometimes they're very little things. But every day, Jesus, in your word, give me something to do so that I can know you so that I'll fall in love with you. Lastly, my challenge to you would be to keep track of the promptings you get during the week. And this one is going to encourage you so much. This one is going to encourage you so much. In your journaling, Think back over the week and start to write down. Make a list. I did it again this morning. Um, make a list of all the little promptings God's given you. Most of them are very small. The prompting you had to send so-and-so an email of encouragement. The, so-and-so, the, the, the prompting you had to say sorry to so-and-so. Whatever. Make a prompt. You know what you know it's going to do? Many of us have this false idea that Jesus is far away. And you have no idea how close he is to your life. And we are so insensitive to his promptings. No wonder we don't know him. We don't love him. Start to write down. And many times, as you're making your list, you're going to find, oh, that was a prompt. The Holy Spirit brings something to mind. Oh, you prompted me back there to do that yesterday. I didn't do it, and I messed up. But whatever, just start to write down all the promptings. What it'll do is it'll make you sensitive to how much Jesus is actually wanting to work in your life. It'll make you more sensitive to his voice, and it'll make you more sensitive in obedience. And as you grow in obeying the commands he gives you in here, and the promptings to love people and serve his kingdom and be generous that he gives you in here during the day. As you grow in those things, doing those things, you give that a little bit of time, you're going to look back and you're going to go, I know Jesus so much more. And I love him. And it won't be hard. There's no button, but it's in the doing and the seeking. That's where the finding and the knowing and the loving come. Bow your heads with me. Close your eyes. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus. My prayer for every person here today, starting with me, 
We want to know you more. We want to know you more. Because you are so magnificent. When we know you, we will love you. I pray that you would reveal yourself more and more each to each person here in this room today. Lord, I pray as a church, God, that we will not just be known as, oh, there's big Southland. Look at all the big stuff they're doing. I pray that we will be known as a church full of people who are preoccupied with Jesus, who are centered on you, Jesus, where we are sensitive to your leading every day. Abide in me, you told us where we are listening to you throughout the day, where we are following you, where we are being changed by you, and we are genuinely falling in love with you. It's falling, loving you is not just something we say with our mouths, but with our hearts, we all genuinely love you. You are worth it. So I pray that you would reveal yourself to us. In your name we pray. Amen.